Okay, we are finishing up our series on the Holy Spirit, and in doing this series, we took a couple of weeks and we examined what the Holy Spirit does throughout the Scripture. We started with the Old Testament, and we found that God was active in the Old Testament doing certain things, giving life. Uh, He was there present from the very beginning of creation, and we saw how His Spirit would move the prophets to speak to Israel, to deliver God's messages, sometimes a message of something far in the future, sometimes a message of something that was imminently close and danger that was to come for those who did not repent. But they would declare God's messages by the moving of His Spirit. We saw in the New Testament how the Holy Spirit was present, especially in the person of Jesus Christ, Um, the God become man who is led by the Holy Spirit conceived by the Holy Spirit, born in the Holy Spirit, uh, led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, carried out from the wilderness and in ministry by the Holy Spirit, who gives up His Spirit on the cross just before He dies, and who rises again by the power of the Holy Spirit. That same Holy Spirit working in the early church, giving power to the early Christians to be His witnesses, First Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria, and eventually on and on to even our day today. We saw how he moved in the early churches. We saw how he worked in the early churches to not only give them ministries that were powerful, though though they certainly had powerful ministry, but gave them the words to speak. How he would meet them in particular circumstances and give them the words to say. How he would reprove and chastise them when they were wrong. How he would lead his church. How he has gifted his church with spiritual gifts. Gifts that aren't made to make yourself a little bit bigger. The gifts that are made to build the whole body together. We saw the Holy Spirit doing all this work. God's active presence throughout not only human history, but divine history. And so tonight... We want to deal with a couple of questions. Um, There were two questions that were posed ahead of time. So I'm going to deal with those first. And then if we have any other questions or anything that y'all are wanting to ask about, we'll get to those in just a minute. But first, I want to deal with the questions that have already been asked. So let's pray, ask God to give us some wisdom, and then we'll go through from there. Father, um, as we approach this time of asking questions, Father, we recognize that it's it's not bad to have questions. It's not bad to seek understanding and wisdom from you. In fact, you ask us to do that. So, Father, we humbly, recognizing that we may not have all the answers and recognizing that, Lord, we don't even sometimes know all the questions that we need to be asking, we ask you to give us wisdom. By your Holy Spirit, guide us into all truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The first question, there were two questions that were posed ahead of time. The first question wasn't really about the Holy Spirit. Um, one of the things, though, though, that when you think about God and you think about the Trinity, the fact that God is Father, Son, and Spirit, um, all three, yet one. Um, I don't want to get too much into that at the moment. Um, if y'all have questions about that, we can deal with that in shortly. But, but this question focused on man. How is man? Is man body, soul, and spirit three parts? Or is there 
are there two parts or kind of soul and spirit the same thing? What, what does our makeup look like? And one of the tempting things to do is to look at God and say, well, God is three, so it makes sense that man should be three. And in fact, really, if you think about it, uh, we like to do this. If you want to show something in its complete picture, they tell journalists when they're in school, um, you, you give it three adjectives. Because if you get one adjective, you're simplifying it. If you give it two adjectives, it's typically a contrast. You know, um, for example, if you say an energetic old man, energetic and old aren't exactly opposites, but they don't typically go together, do they? And so it gives this contrast and kind of gives a little more color to who you're talking about. But when you add three adjectives, it's it gives a almost complete picture. If I say the large red um, leather shoes, you get you get a good picture of what those shoes look like, don't you? There's something about three that just seems complete. And so it makes sense that man would be three parts, body, soul, spirit. Nobody doubts that we have a body, right? I mean, I mean, we're bodies, somebody, anybody, everybody, right? I mean, so definitely our bodies. Yeah, I can confirm that. There's definitely something spiritual to us. The question is exactly how is it? Let me say two things um, in addressing this question. First of all, we don't need to doubt that man is not whole. Man is unit is a unity. Okay, there's not. You can't separate, for example, body and spirit and say the body is a man, the spirit is another man. That doesn't work. You can't say all of you is the body. We can't say that. We know that's not true. And so any any evangelical. Anybody who's looking at it from God's perspective is going to tell you that there's definitely not this splitting up of a person. Half of you is body, half of you is spirit. It doesn't work that way. So having said that, we have to recognize that no matter how many parts we have, we're one person. And they're all working together. And so what one does affects the other. Which, by the way, is why uh, God... Why the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthian church, do you not know you have been, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You have been bought with a price, therefore honor God with your body. He's saying you can't live this life divorced to where you're doing certain things with your spirit and you're doing other things with your body and it's okay, they don't have to really mesh because they're like different people. That's No, that's not how it works. We're all one person. And so whatever we're seeing, whether we're two parts or three parts or 47 parts, doesn't really matter. We're all one person. Each person is one person. I don't think we have 47 parts. Don't don't worry. That's just just getting the point across, okay? All right, so let's let's set that as a baseline. We're definitely unified. But what does the Bible say about our makeup? The Bible uses a couple of different words. In the Hebrew, the Old Testament, the word nefesh, and in the New Testament, the word psyche, would refer to our soul. That's the English word soul, okay? They're used a lot of different times in a lot of different cases. The other words, spirit, are um, in the Hebrew, ruach, and in the Greek, pneuma. Pneuma would be where we get, uh, um, yeah, pneumatic, so like lungs, breath, that sort of thing. Um, those those kinds of things. Um, when when the Bible uses these words, 
it's often, we read it in English and we see soul and we see spirit sometimes. And so it's easy to kind of think, okay, this looks like different things. But when you compare them, you actually see that they do a lot of the same things. We talk about the soul and we talk about the spirit. Uh, Mary says in Luke 1, 46 and 47, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She uses both terms. Um, John 12, now my soul is troubled. Jesus is talking. My soul is troubled. Um, but yet in John 13, it says that he was troubled in spirit. A lot of the times when these two words are used, they're, they're used interchangeably. The, when we die. And some verses say that the soul departs. Some verses tell us that the spirit departs. Um, there's other, there's other examples as well. Nowhere in scripture though do we find it talked about man as body, soul, spirit all together. It's either body and spirit, body and soul. It's never really all three. And, and so from these kinds of things, both the soul sins and the spirit sins, it's both mentioned in, in terms of sinning. So from all these, it looks like, it looks like the Bible is using soul and spirit almost interchangeably. And so I think, and I'm not very dogmatic about this. I'm not going to like kick you out of the church if you disagree. I'm not going to, no, that, that's, we just don't have definite scripture that says this is exactly how man is made up. But it seems to me like from this evidence, from the evidence of Scripture using the terms as it does interchangeably, that it looks like soul and spirit are the same thing. And so I would fall on the side that says man is body and man is soul or spirit, you know, either or, you know, slash name, whatever you want to call it. But I would I would say that man would be two parts. Again, there's I'm not dogmatic. And the reason I'm not dogmatic is because God doesn't really tell us all the way. We're having to use these kinds of things to infer from Scripture. Um, plus, how do you divide between soul and spirit? It's just, you, you, nobody ever really gives a good definition for that. They kind of sort of halfway, but they can't never really explain it. And so, um, based on what I've read in Scripture, I think I think it's safe to say that we're probably two parts, but we could be three. And if we, if we are three, if we are body, soul, and spirit, I don't quite understand how that works. And that's okay. I don't understand how a lot of things work. But, but certainly we are one person. And God says, uh, in Deuteronomy six, love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Actually, he doesn't say mine in Deuteronomy. Jesus adds that when he quotes it later. But what he's saying is love God with everything. All of us together, whether we're two parts or three parts, all of our parts need to be loving God. And so uh, either case, that's where I fall on that issue. There's good explanations, both sides of that. I'm not I'm not going to kick you out if you think we're three. Uh, that's OK. That's perfectly fine with me. Um, the it seems that the Trinity isn't a perfect example of how this works in people because God is perfect and we're not. Um, but also because in the Trinity, there each person is distinctive, and that's not true in us. You can't separate body and spirit. You can't separate body and soul. You can't separate those things. And so um, I would argue that we're two, not three. But again, it's okay if you believe something a little differently, just as long as all of you love God. 
You know, that's that's all the that's we're headed in the right direction as long as we're doing that. So that handles the first question. The second question was more related to the Holy Spirit. And if I remember the question correctly, uh, it seems like there um, the, the question was about, is there ever a point where the Holy Spirit will leave you? Is there ever a point where a person can become so sinful, so disobedient to God that the Holy Spirit could leave that individual? Um, I didn't have to think very long on this because several scriptures popped to mind. One of them was, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Another one, and this is a little bit more uh, strong into it. When John is talking uh, in his first epistle, he says this, No one who is born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, does that mean we don't keep messing up? No, we mess up, and we mess up constantly, right? But what he's saying here is, this isn't a lifestyle for the child of God. The child of God does not continue in sin, constantly sinning and sinning and sinning, never repenting, never turning away, never trying to be better, never never fully realizing both the forgiveness of God for sins committed and the power of God to overcome sin. It's one thing to be addicted and to try to get rid of it and try to get rid of it and try to get rid of it. I know folks who smoke and they tried and they try and they try and they get on patches and that, that works for a little while and then they're back into it or they, they, they get down to less and less and less and then it picks back up and it's, it's this long drawn out battle. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the person that just refuses to do anything about it. The person who knows they're wrong and yet continues in it. That's not a child of God. He says in another place in this, um, epistle that the reason they left us, talking about individuals who were part of the church, who were in fellowship with the church, that everybody thinks, everybody thinks is on the right path and then leave. The ones who left us, left us because they were not of us. And his point here is they weren't saved in the first place. They looked like it. They talked the talk. Man, they got wet in the baptism. They, they did everything that outwardly that it looks like you're supposed to be doing to be a Christian, but they did not continue. They fell away, not falling out of salvation because they never had it in the first place. It was all for show. And so when I, when I read that question, that's what I thought of. It is much more likely. Uh, I don't think God's spirit leaves anybody. Now, I will say this. You get to a certain point, God will say that's enough one way or another. <laughs> either, either he's going to change your heart or he's going to get rid of you. That's enough. But there's, there's never a point where the spirit leaves the believer. I think I can very safely say that on the basis of scripture. I don't think there's any doubt in my mind that God does not leave. Um, after all, I wouldn't be a Baptist if I didn't say that. That's one of those, that's one of those points that I, I can't say that because the first Baptist, uh, did not hold that belief. The very first Baptist did not actually hold that belief, but. That's one of those things that's now a distinctive thing among Baptists, um, Baptists and Calvinists. So I am a little bit Calvinist in that respect, but maybe that's a discussion for another time. So I hope those answered those two questions. Are there any other questions that have come to y'all's mind about the Holy Spirit, about some of the things that he does or...
Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you if you look, um, let's see. So, what what one thing that the Book of Judges does, and this is this is a repeating pattern throughout the book. Israel is sinning against God. They've turned their backs on God. They become so they go away from God. They get to a certain point and God decides to punish them. And so a foreign enemy, usually the Philistines, someone like that comes in and attacks them, oppresses them. They're now down at the bottom. I mean, they've hit rock bottom. They're crying out to God for help. And God raises up a judge who delivers them from the enemy. But instead of getting all the way back up to where they were before, they never quite fully repent. So let me explain what I mean. Judges chapter 2. Listen, this is verses 16 and following. Then the Lord raised up judges who, who saved them out of the land, out of the hand, excuse me, of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges. For they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who were afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other guys. And the, the cycle just keeps repeating. But one thing I noticed in that passage, I don't know if you caught it, but it says, while the judge was alive, God uses the judges, but he doesn't, there's no actual record of the Holy Spirit leaving the judges. If you look, um, and I think a good, a good uh, test case for this is the last judge. Who knows who the last judge was? Boys, y'all know who the last judge was? Mitchell, you, could, you couldn't be this judge anymore. <laughs> who was the last judge? Do y'all know? No. Had long hair, really strong. Samson. Samson was the last judge. So Samson, Samson is this interesting case because Samson is terrible. Like his person, he can't make a good decision to save his life. I mean, he is, he gets mad at the drop of a hat. He is ready to go out and kill some folks at just at, at the slightest thing. He, he wants to get married to this woman and um, first of all, he wants to marry another girl and, and something happens and the father gives her away to someone else because they think he's dead because he's gone so long or whatever. And finally he comes in, he finds this Philistine girl named Delilah and oh man, man, he's just gotta have her, gotta have her, gotta have her, gotta have her. Go get her for me. I want this one. This is, this is the one I want, but don't you want a good Hebrew girl? No, I want this one. Right. And so he goes after her and what happens? Man, she is just a thorn in his flesh. <laughs> Using him to finally she gets him to tell her the secret and all that kind of stuff. And and one of the things that it says, anytime that Samson does this great feat of strength, it says that the Holy Spirit rushed upon him. Now that sounds like God's coming in. The Holy Spirit's coming in. He does this fantastic feat and then he can't, he doesn't have the super strength anymore until the next time this spirit comes in, right? And so it would seem to us, it would look like God comes in, does it and leaves, comes in, does it and leaves, comes in, does it and leaves. But that's not the actual pattern that's happening. And this all goes into the New Testament in what some people even today would call something called the baptism of the spirit. 
where where it's like this separate thing where the Holy Spirit comes upon you and 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 does this stuff. What I think is actually going on here is that the Holy Spirit is empowering him to do those works, but not in a matter of I'm coming on you and then leaving, coming on you and then leaving. It's like, well, it's like um, take any kind of electric thing, okay? You plug it up, it gets power. Most of them have an on switch. And until you hit that on switch, it doesn't do anything. Now, you try to play with some of the wires while it's plugged in, and you'll find out it's got power. But it doesn't do anything. It doesn't do what it's supposed to do until you turn on that switch. It's almost, I, I think what's happening here is the Holy Spirit comes on that judge and stays with that judge. But there's certain times where he flips that on switch and he is in control and there's no stopping him. And then there's other times where that switch is flipped back off and, and he's there, but he's not the one determining what they do. And I, I believe that fits with Scripture for two reasons. Number one, because if if the Holy Spirit is coming and going, coming and going, coming and going, and then in the New Testament He's coming and saying, well, what changed? God didn't change. People didn't really change. What changed? But if He's coming and staying, and there's just certain times where He's working prominently and other times where He's not as prominent, and we know this. You guys ever do something you shouldn't do as a Christian? You know you can say no to the Holy Spirit. Don't. <laughs> Bad idea, but it happens. So I think there's certain times where they're being led by the Spirit in such a way that he just takes over and there's no stopping him. And then there's other times where he allows them the chance. You can follow me. You can do your own thing. And they're doing their own thing. That's why he makes so many bad decisions, Samson does, because he doesn't like to be under under control. He likes to be the one in charge. So what I think is going on here is not that the Holy Spirit's coming and going. It's that there's just certain times where those people aren't following him. And then there's other times where he just takes over because God has every right to just take over. Um, does that answer your question? Or did I ramble around it and not actually hit it? There's no sign of that. Um, there are certainly signs that he indwelled many men. He indwelled specific men that he, even women, Deborah is a judge. Um, and so it's not just men, it's women too. But, but there's nothing showing, um, that all men or even all Israelites were, were, uh, indwelled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, um, one of the promises of the new covenant that God makes to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, um, let's see if I can pull this up real quick. Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-one. Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, although I was their husband, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall they teach, each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me. So part of that new covenant is you're not going to have to teach people about God anymore because everybody's going to know me. There's coming a day where all know him. Now, some know him the wrong kind of way and some know him the right kind of way. But there's coming a day when all know him. That's not true yet. That's not fully true yet. 
And so there's no scripture evidence that says everybody was uh, empowered by the Spirit. Everybody is indwelled by the Spirit. That's just not, that's not the way it happens. The scriptural uh, uh, precedent, and there's nothing to counteract this at all, is when you believe, that's when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And in Acts, when, when, when the things are a little bit separated, there's specific reasons they're separated. Like you can actually see God not bringing his spirit until after Christ goes up into heaven. And they're in that upper room praying. And then the spirit comes down and they start to testify. They start to prophesy. They start to speak in different languages and people understand what they're saying in their own dialect, even though these men are from Galilee and they're from all over the place, they can still understand them. You see what's happening is, is there's a specific reason for that. Other than that, God, God's spirit comes with belief. So at that point, I would say that the soul or the spirit is dead. Paul specifically uses that language. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Um, and until we're quickened. Yeah. And so I would say that person is dead right now. You, you are body. <laughs> and, but then, and, and that might be a good case for the, the trichotomy view is that you might say, well, the soul, there's more to us than body at that point, but we're not really gods. And so there's something different there. And that may be, that may be a, a fairly persuasive argument, but, but when, when the Holy Spirit, that's when, that's when, um, to put it as some Christians might, that's when we're fully alive. That's, that's the point where, where we're fully and completely alive. Because that's the point where God has brought us back from the dead. So, I don't know for sure. Like I said, I don't know for sure that in, in terms of body, soul, spirit, that kind of thing. But, um, I could see, I could see the arguments on both sides of that. And you, you know, I, th- I think they're, they could be fairly persuasive either way. I'm, but any other questions? Mm-hmm. Yes, it could be under the dichotomy view that that men are two parts. Yes, it's just called spirit here. Spirit soul would be synonymous names for the same thing. Okay, um, under the trichotomy, it would be just the spirit part, um, but the soul part would be different, and the body part would be different. But yeah, so. It, that verse certainly tells us there's more to us than just body, and God is speaking within us to confirm our salvation. Go ahead. Yes. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Yes. Oh. Yeah. Hold on. I'm looking for that. Do you happen to know where that passage is? I. So Mark chapter 3, Jesus is speaking. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Think about the, think about what Jesus says, um, some of the work of the Holy Spirit is. One of the main things he says that the Holy Spirit's job is, is conviction, right? Conviction of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. So conviction of sin, what does Jesus say? Do you remember? John chapter 16, I think, is that passage. Um, John 16, am I correct? I might be. Yeah. Okay, John 16, 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. And so what he says is the Holy Spirit's job, 
one of his jobs, okay, he has several jobs. One of his jobs, though, is to convict you of sin. But there's a specific sin, and that's that they do not believe in me. Another point, John chapter 7, he says that the work of God, the work of the Father, is to believe in the one whom he has sent. That's what God calls us to do, is to believe. That's the work that we do. That's the only work that we do that grants us salvation. Because if we believe, we put ourselves in the center of his will. He does the work in us to save us from our sins. We don't do that. All we do is believe. Okay? So that's our role is believing. But if we don't believe, now we're under conviction of the Holy Spirit because they, because we're not believing. He says so right here. So if we're convicted by the Holy Spirit for not believing in Christ, and then we say, oh well, We've disregarded the Holy Spirit's conviction. Now there's no hope. When, when we come face to face with Christ and we have that conviction of the Holy Spirit, that's when we have the choice. Do I believe or do I not believe? So blaspheming the Holy Spirit is rejecting him at that point. And we're not just rejecting him, we're rejecting the one that he's declaring. We're rejecting Christ, we're rejecting the Father. So that's where, that's where blasphemy of the Holy Spirit comes in. It's not a matter of um, anything other than disbelief. In fact, that, that's all that it is, is, is a refusal to believe. Because that's when we put ourselves completely at enmity with God by choice. First, we do it because that's our nature. But when we come under conviction by the Holy Spirit, we have a choice and we choose not to believe. That's the point where there's no more hope for us. Now, God may say, I'll give you other chances or whatever. He may, he may do this several times, and that conviction may last for months and months on end. Um, if you read some, like Augustine's Confessions, if you read that, he struggles with it for a very long time. He's under conviction for a very long time before he finally, finally accepts Christ. But So it doesn't look the same for everybody. It's not like a one-time thing. You either accept it now or it's gone forever. You know, that, It's not always like that, but sometimes it may be. Sometimes a person may have one chance and they say no, and that's it. That's all up to God. But all I know is that when that conviction comes and we say no, that's when we blaspheme the Holy Spirit. That's when we've declared that he is speaking lies. Blasphemy, oh man, hang on just a second. The basic idea of that word is to slander. It's to speak false words is, is the idea. Not just to say something that's not true, but to say something that you know is not true. What, what uh, legally we would call uh, slander, libel, defamation of character, that's the idea of this word. And so not only are you just, I'm not really sure about this. Let me think about it a while. Let me examine the, you know, that's not what this is. This is a complete out and out rejection or refusal to believe. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just a saying. It's an attitude of the heart as well. Uh, and it's, and it's something that's, when it gets to that point, there's just, it's nothing else. There, there's just no other hope. Miss Barbara? Can't remember? Okay. That's okay. It's okay. What other questions? Okay. Well, that passage in Romans chapter 8 tells me he does a pretty good job of it. Uh, <laughs> he's praying for us when we don't know what to pray for ourselves. Um, so he's certainly involved in the process of intercessory prayer and not just not just um, helping us pray, but praying for us as well. But in what case are you? Well, I believe 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. Are you asking what, like how the Holy Spirit plays into that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, no, it's not. Are you are you asking whether our prayers and I want to be careful how I phrase that because I want to make sure I get what your question is saying. Uh, are you asking whether our prayers influence the Holy Spirit convicting someone else? Like if we're praying for someone, what impact that has? Um, here's what I know. Uh, and and let's look at this passage in Romans because I think this will help us. Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. This is Romans eight twenty six. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Boy, how often is that true? But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So here's, here's what I know is happening. When we are praying, even though we may not pray very good, <laughs> we may not be very good at praying at all, God's Spirit is interceding on our behalf, right? Okay, so follow me here. You've got that feeling you need to pray for a specific person. But let's just call him Jim B, okay? Just no one in particular, just Jim B. <laughs> yeah, no, no particular reason. Um, you feel like, let's just say, that you're going to pray for Jim. There's... You know Jim needs to know Jesus, and so you're just going to pray, and you're going to pray for him. The way that I understand it, the Holy Spirit is praying at the same time you are, and even when you're not. If I understand this correctly, God's Spirit is interceding, and one of the things that he's interceding for is for Jim, right? One of the things that he's interceding for is that particular person that he's put on your heart to pray for. What I know of God isn't that he doesn't change his mind, okay? But what I also see of God is that sometimes he will let someone in kind of on what he's doing. He talks to Abraham, I'm going to destroy that city. Abraham says, well, what if you find 50 righteous people in that city? He starts bargaining with God, right? 50, 40, 30, you know, gets it all the way down to 10, I think. Why didn't he go down to one? I don't know. Anyway. So he, he bargains with God, so to speak. And it looks like he's changing God's mind, like he's influencing God. Do you, do you really think God's changing? I don't think God's changing. But here's what he does sometimes is he will take his will and kind of nudge you along to get you a little bit closer, and a little bit closer, and a little bit closer until he's got you praying the way that he wants you to pray because that's what he wants to do. If You've got on your heart to pray for Jim, and you're not praying for Jim. He could still do whatever he wants with Jim. That's it. That that's it. He's still going to do it anyway. But now you've completely missed out. Now you haven't been part of it. God's tried to pull you in to having a part to play in His will being done, and you have responded negatively. You've quit the Spirit. You've made a bad choice. You've turned the switch off, and now He can't use you in the way that He was going to use you. But when you do. When you do pray, God says, yeah, I'll answer that prayer. That's exactly what I wanted you to pray. And he'll keep working. I think what happens isn't that we affect the Spirit so much as the Spirit affects us and brings us into what God is already doing. 
and allows us to be part of that. I don't know. I don't think God's waiting for a quota and says, okay, when, when Jim hits 150 prayers, when, when 150 prayers are said for Jim, then, then that's when I'm, I'm going to convict him. I don't think that's how God's working. But I do think God says, I want in this process not only to bring the gospel to Jim, but I also want to turn Robert's heart. I want him to become a little bit more like me in this process. And that's the kind of thing that he does. That's, that's how I'm seeing it. Now, again, I'm not God. I don't have perfect understanding of him. But that's the way it looks in Scripture. Why would he send Jonah to Nineveh to declare that they're going to be destroyed and then spare the city? Was he going to destroy the city? Now, that's just the means he used to get them to repent. By the way, if I could preach eight words and see a whole city repent, that would be amazing. I'd love that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's possible. Because remember, the goal of prayer isn't always to get God to do something. Oftentimes, the role of prayer is to get us to be more like him. And so, yeah, he could he could very well convict you to keep praying, keep praying, keep praying. But it could also be the fact that God wants you to persevere in that prayer because he isn't done yet. We just don't know his mind. So if you're convicted, pray. If you're convicted for someone, pray. Pray, work at it hard. Pray, 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 please. Don't stop praying. But just know that that prayer may not be for God to do something. That might be for you to become more like him. So, so yeah, if you're convicted, keep praying. <laughs> don't, don't stop. Exactly. I know. I understand. I understand. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Sometimes we look at prayer as us giving God his to-do list. That's not what prayer is. Maybe, maybe we should spend some time on that, but I know I could always, I could use the help, but, um, prayer is often what God wants to do in us, not just what we want God to do. In fact, sometimes God looks at our to-do list and laughs because he's just like, those are the craziest things I've ever heard. Why, why in the world would you want me to do that when I'm going to do things that you can't even imagine? So any other questions? See, I thought y'all were going to be like, what about slaying in the spirit and spiritual gifts and all this kind of stuff? I, I didn't, but it's good. I'm glad, I'm glad we could take some time, address some questions on your mind. And we may do this again with something else soon, but, um, keep talking to Daryl because Daryl and I do talk a lot about discussions in Sunday school. Those of you that are in that class. And if there's something that's on your mind, I would like to know about it because, um, there are certain times where, this time of year or, you know, this particular period, um, knowing what's on your minds helps me um, to plan preaching and plan things that can really help you. So I'm not here just to pontificate, though it seems that way sometimes, I'm sure. Um, I love y'all and I pray for y'all and I'm here to do anything I can to help y'all. So let's pray and then we'll dismiss. Father, thank you for your spirit. Lord, thank you that we cannot delve the depths. We cannot possibly begin to understand you fully. So, Father, forgive our ignorance, but also use it as a means of bringing us closer to you. Lord, go with us through this week. Help us to bring good news to those around us. Not only good news of a baby being born, good news of who that baby is and what he's done for us. Father, thank you for this family. Pray that you be with us as we go. In Christ's name, amen.